Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Dr. Kevin Majors, a Harvard psychiatrist who will continue giving us practical ways to successfully live with anxiety. Today, through the practice of mindfulness. By the way, his two episodes on anxiety that have aired previously are the number one and number three most downloaded episodes of Dr. Doctor as of the beginning of 2020. So we know this topic appeals to many of you. But before we dive in and interview Kevin, let's talk about some of the key points from those other two previous episodes on anxiety. Why is anxiety so interesting to our listeners? Well, probably because 20% of the population of America, over 40 million Americans who are adults, uh, suffer from it. And of this group, only about 37% receive any kind of treatment, even though it is highly treatable. Why do you think that number is so low? Maybe the the stigma with mentioning it or thinking that it's impossible to treat, perhaps. And also probably fact that they think that there is nothing that works. Or access to providers that have an ability. Uh, Who knows? Or I've got too many other things to do than to worry about this. There's so many reasons. Even adolescents, you know, those between 13 and 18, one third of them have a lifetime incidence during the teenage years of having this. And what I'm hearing from pediatricians is that complaints of anxiety are rising. And a lot of pediatricians think it's due to the heinous aspects of social media. Well, now in medicine, we love our terms and we love our definitions. So let's define first anxiety. Anxiety is a fear of rational thoughts. I'm afraid of someone shooting me. Right. That's a rational thought. That would be an obsession. That would be a fear of an irrational thought. If someone was shooting me, it would be very rational. (laughs) (laughs) If there was, I don't think that that's rational in the world of Chris Stroud. Now, something great that Kevin pointed out is that anxiety is emotion that we can't control. Mm. What we do with it, we can. And those things that we do with it that harm us are worry, dread, rumination. So we can control our responses. And he has talked about that. He talks about how anxiety is a high adrenaline state, but it's a negative one. But then he also talked in the last show about a high adrenaline state that is positive called flow, when we have mastery over whatever it is we are doing at that moment. And, you know, one of the best things that he has told us we can do in the moment with anxiety is three words. Bring it on. (laughs) In other words, that adrenaline is a superpower programmed by God into our bodies to help us excel in those situations when we feel anxious so that we can get into a flow state and be all totally engaged with what we're doing and be the best versions of ourselves. So anxiety, he says, is not a disorder, but it's a challenge to grow, to grow more wholly into the best version of ourselves. And adrenaline is meant to connect us with other people. Now, he gave some advice in past episodes that coping with anxiety requires good sleep. And, oh, boy, we're so boring. We mentioned the importance of sleep in so many different shows because it's true. You know, seven to eight hours of night is important. And he says the only time that we can grow dealing with anxiety is in the moment when we're experiencing it. Hmm. So we have to, we've got to be there to learn to deal with it. Yes. He talked about a skill called reframing, which is mentally reframing the idea we have. For instance, the idea that anxiety is a bad thing and we should try to calm down. Hmm. That's probably the worst thing we could tell somebody who is anxious to calm down. He would say either bring it on or lean into it because that's the chance to grow. So that's a type of reframing, thinking about something differently. Now, he talks about acceptance and commitment therapy. This is a subset of what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a way to deal with anxiety. And to me, this was like the biggest aha moment I've had since doing over two years now of Dr. Doctor. So often we try to get rid of anxiety by wrestling it, by thinking it away. And this is like trying to tell someone, don't think about a blue elephant. (laughs) What do you think of as soon as I say that? You can't think of anything else. So the more you work to get rid of that anxiety, that anxious thought, 
the harder it's bound to you. With acceptance commitment therapy, you accept that that, that anxiety is there as part of you. And then you learn different ways of living with it, and its effect on you becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And the topic of mindfulness is going to be one of the key ways that he has helped me to combat my own anxiety in daily life. Now, the most common way physicians will deal with anxiety is SSRIs, a group of medicines, antidepressants, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. While they will help blunt the feelings of anxiety and the desire to worry or ruminate, he says they take away the sense of confidence that we could have in dealing with our anxiety. So he really doesn't use these at all. And he uses ways that our body can influence our brain instead of letting our brain influence our body. That is interesting. I mean, we want to make those feelings go away. And as healthcare providers, if you've ever encountered someone with terrible anxiety, it's not a pleasant thing to witness, nor is it a pleasant thing to feel. It's logical. If I give you this medication, it'll make the anxiety go away. You'll be happier. But as you point out, um, learning how to face that without covering up in the long term may be much more effective oh, uh, at coping with that It's anxiety. the first thing in 30 years that's made a difference for me, and mm. it's a profound difference. And in fact, he talks about turning anxiety into a flow. And flow is our highest state of performance. When we're totally absorbed in a task, we lose track of time. We don't self-monitor. In other words, we don't notice that pain in our foot or that headache because we are in the moment and we have lost track of time and place because we're so much there. And as Kevin says, we have dominion over our work. And he says three aspects of our work. It's order, it's intensity, and it's constancy. Now, we might think that somebody playing a video game is in flow, but he makes the very good distinction that someone in a video game has hyper-focus. He says when you come out of flow, you are at peace and ready to engage another person. But when you are in hyper-focus, you are irritated when somebody brings you out of that. And this information isn't out there in any research studies, but it's something that he has told me himself he needs to write up and explain. But he says there's three steps to turn anxiety into flow. And step one is that reframing. In other words, realizing and telling yourself anxiety is an opportunity to learn. It's not a situation to dread and be eager to practice. You know, bring it on, except adrenaline is a superpower. The second step is what we're talking about with him tonight. Mindfulness. Feel and observe the anxiety, but as an observer not necessarily as someone who's feeling pain associated with it. And he'll talk about that tonight. And then the third step of turning anxiety into flow is take the challenge to stretch. In other words, deliberately ask, act against the fear. Lean into it. Do what you know is the right thing to do despite the fact that you feel the anxiety. Well, Tom, I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say Uh, about mindfulness. But before uh, he joins us and we go to our break, let's take a moment and share with our listeners today's trivia question. And it's biblical. Yes, today's category is anxiety in the Bible. (laughs) So in the Bible, Jesus told one person that he or she was anxious. And his mother Mary mentioned one time that she was anxious. So can you name the person Jesus called anxious to his or her face? and the event when Mary said she was anxious. Well, we'll have the answer to this amazing question and many, many more when we're back from our break with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our third episode with Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin was born and raised in Minnesota, went to college and medical school in Dallas, where he studied at the University of Dallas and then did medical school and psychiatry at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. He did a fellowship in cognitive therapy and research at the Beck Institute in Philadelphia. And for the last decade, he's been a faculty member at Harvard Medical School teaching cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists in training. Kevin, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Yeah, thanks so much. So, Tom and Chris, great to be back with you all. You know, this subject of mindfulness came at me from several different areas. And one area came uh, a year and a half ago. I attended a conference at the Vatican uh, on 
translational medicine, on different types of research, global medicine, but they had a segment on mindfulness. And so I did some research, and if you look through Catholic literature, there are some people who are not only skeptical of mindfulness, but but think it's bad. In fact, in a recent issue of Catholic World Report, it says, quote, mindfulness is derived from the Buddhist tradition and is a seventh step in the noble eightfold path, which Buddhists believe is a process that leads to awakening one's true nature. And yet there are people like you who say mindfulness is a good thing. Can you help us to parse through what this really means? Is it something dangerous? That's, it's a great question. And you know, I have to say my, my thinking on this Initially, I was, and still I'm completely sympathetic to Catholics being on guard about a practice that they don't know where it came from. So that makes total sense to me. I remember even giving a talk once in Ireland, and I was talking about some aspects in St. John of the Cross and and his dealings with attention. And and someone said, oh, this is all very Buddhist. I said, no, this is St. John of the Cross. And, and they said, no, but he was influenced by Buddhism. Oh, St. John of the Cross <laughs> no, in he wasn't. Spain? He wasn't. <laughs> what did they know of yeah. Buddhism? <laughs> so, and if he, there is a very rich tradition in the West that does exactly the same work psychologically as what we talk about mindfulness is coming from the East. So mindfulness, in my mind, is like a posture of the mind. Mm. And it's a lot like kneeling as a posture of the body. Ah. And if we were to find medical benefits, that if people spend three minutes, five minutes kneeling in the morning and evening, <laughs> you know, that they're more grateful and they're more likely to forgive. There's all these benefits of kneeling. Well, that wouldn't mean, you know, I mean, that would make sense. But that wouldn't be the reason to kneel. And you wouldn't want kneeling to be an end in itself, as if that's magical. But yet it does put the body in a position more ready to pray. Yes. And I would say mindfulness is the posture of the mind where we're ready to actually search for God. Ah, that is wonderful. You know, I remember learning a phrase in college or med school, and I thought it was C.S. Lewis, but I cannot find it. It may well have been him, but where he said, as the body is inclined, so the spirit. In other words, yes. the, the body influences the mind and the spirit. So you would agree with that? Absolutely. And if you've ever seen you know, people trying to pray and they're constantly fidgeting, yes, they couldn't but be mentally distracted. Mm. Ah. But it's pretty consistent with our whole Catholic sense of liturgy in a way, isn't it? Because you know, there's certain things we do. We kneel when we pray. We, yeah. we stand when we pray. Or we sit yes. when we receive instruction. It's the, the body getting the mind prepared to, to receive in the, in the appropriate format, isn't it? Exactly. And I see mindfulness is simply silence. It's how to foster interior silence. And so much of the time, there's noise running through our minds. You know, and, and so how do we get the noise out and have stillness and slowness and silence? So spiritual writers talk about the interior life. And I have heard one definition of the interior life being that constant conversation we're having with ourselves in our heads. Is that accurate? Oh, as a definition of interior life, I, th- I think that's actually, in a sense, the old man within us. Ah. <laughs> I think the new man is silent. Oh, well, exactly. And, <laughs> in other words, we've got so much chatter, it gets rid of what yeah. we should be doing with our interior life. And almost all of our psychological problems come from the chatter in our heads. Think of a time when you're like a person has had difficulty forgiving someone and forgetting. Yes. Or accepting something. It's the chatter in the head. Mm. Well, exactly. So, well, so it, how do you instead find silence? That's the question. Well, and Blaise Pascal wrote about this in Ponce's, didn't he? He said he yeah. diagnosed all the problems of a modern man as, and do you remember the, what he says? That, what was the, he said that, that a man is not able to sit silently to exactly. in his room. Yeah. I resent that he was talking yes. about me. Right <laughs> yeah. yeah. It even says in Isaiah you know, that in silence and in hope shall be your strength. And I think silence and hope are very, very deeply united. So one thing is silence, when we embrace it in the presence of God and while we're seeking God, is very much embracing the cross. 
And just as the cross lifts us off the earth and stretches us out, silence does that too. Another image I use is silence is like a lens. On its own, it doesn't do anything. And so as an end in itself, mindfulness or silence doesn't do much. But you, if you pass the light of faith through that lens, you get the fire of love on the other side. Wow, that's really graphic and beautiful. So what, yeah. do, you, what do you do with, uh, I'm probably the only person that has this problem, who, <laughs> who goes to adoration and instead of silence, here's, you know, to-do lists at a thousand miles an hour. I mean, how, how yeah. do we ever use mindfulness when we can't get rid of the chatter? What, what tools do it's, we have? It's, it's entirely, I think, the work of sincerity. So sincerity is the virtue that really perfects what I call reframing. Reframing is why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing something to get it done or just to check it off or, or out of fear? Or am I really doing it out of love? And, and, so and just to point out to listeners, yeah. we talked about in the intro to this show, your three steps of turning anxiety into flow. And step yes. one we talked about was reframing. Step two exactly. was mindfulness. And step three yep. was taking action. So please go on. I just wanted to yes. reinforce that idea exactly. for listeners. And so reframing, like you have to, so in each hour of work, we can get better at reframing by asking ourselves, why am I really doing this? And in a time of prayer, it's even more pure because you can ask yourself, what is my real intention? What am I desiring? And so sincerity can work on our desires so that we're really desiring God. Now, sincerity works in two ways, I think. One is that if you actually tell God something while you're in prayer and you say, like, you tell him that you love him, sincerity allows you to mean that more and more. And as you mean it more and more, it's like the reverberations and echoes last longer, so you have to repeat it less and less. Hmm. That's a path into silence in prayer. So, Kevin, I'd like you to clarify the meanings and relationships of three different words. And those words are meditation, mindfulness, and prayer. So first of all, meditation. Meditation is a kind of process of reflecting and reasoning using words and images. So meditation um, is in our mind, and the whole purpose of meditation in the spiritual tradition is to actually do what I just described, which is to arrive at a desire for God. So that we desire God above all things. So some spiritual writers, and here I'm thinking of uh, Dom Eugene Boylan, who wrote this incredible yeah, book, Difficulties yeah. in Mental Prayer. He just was a big weight off my shoulders. He said, meditation, strictly speaking, is not prayer, but it brings you to the threshold of prayer. Yeah, that's right. And and so, you know, I talk for a living, and the last thing I want to do <laughs> in mental prayer is to have—I think of that song from— uh, uh, the uh, My Fair Lady, you know, words, words. I'm so sick of words. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. And, 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 you know, you just want, and so the other, and having a more sincere desire for our Lord's presence leads us to seek it in the right place, which is not in the words and images in our head, and which is like in us, the closest we get to non-being. Ah. And, okay, so the real, like, where do we actually find our Lord it's in the very center of our soul, holding us in being. Yes. So to actually get at this, and this is a key thing where now mindfulness comes in, to be aware of one's breath is the same as being aware of one's life, which is the same as being aware of your act of being. And on the other side of that act of being is our Lord infusing it as the source. Okay, so Kevin, how is meditation then related to mindfulness? Because it seems like they both can prepare us for prayer, but they're not yeah. prayer. So what is exactly? That's right. So and so mindfulness, the object of mindfulness is actually being, hmm. and so it's metaphysical, and you could be mindful of your own thoughts, but that would be a very noisy kind of mindfulness because yes. the thoughts draw on other thoughts. 
But Or you could be aware of the sounds around you, and you could be mindful of those. But that's still a lesser act of being because it's more distant and it's other lesser things. The, the greatest act of being we are directly in contact with is actually our own. So to be aware of one's own being, our very ising, the fact of our existing as an activity, we are an effect, and God is the cause. And to feel ourselves being, in that sense, existing, it's, it's a perception that one has to attain, and it's the highest form of mindfulness. So this is the height, I think, of human wisdom. Aristotle arrives at it when he describes the contemplation of the philosopher, and Eastern traditions arrived at it in describing the highest form of mindfulness. Ultimately, it's a kind of being. Now, what, what, what faith brings to this is once we're aware of our very existing, the I am, the deeper level is I am not, because I'm not the cause of it. Was that St. Catherine of the, Siena or St. Teresa yes, of Avila? Exactly. Saint Catherine? Yeah, exactly. St. Catherine of Siena. Yes. Yeah. And then the deepest level is God is. And St. Paul echoes that when he says, I live, now not I. But Christ, Christ who lives in me. me. Mm. So the third. So being and life are the same. So then, how do these relate thing. to prayer? So when we're praying, we're wanting to find God as close and proximate as we can. And He's actually within us, more interior to us than we are to ourselves. And so to attend to one's very being. The other thing is, the greater the act of being we're attending to, the greater the silence it brings to our whole mind. It actually uses, awareness of being, uses entirely our right hemisphere. The chatter in our head is entirely left hemisphere. Mm. I really strongly recommend the, the work of Ian McGilchrist, an Oxford psychiatrist, who has totally transformed our understanding of these two hemispheres. All the chattering on the left is the left hemisphere problem-solving. That's why you have to-do lists. Yes. The, the right hemisphere is for silence, for being, perception of being, and for love. And all those things come together in what's called contemplation, which is silent loving of God without time passing. So this kind of infusion of love that we're taking part in. And that's the fire I talk about that comes when you pass the desire through silence. When you, when you bring to, in, to full awareness of one's active being, this deep silence, and a desire for God, then you hit the fire of contemplation. And that's the whole thesis of a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. Yes. Which is the most orthodox Catholic book. It's the first English-language spiritual book written uh, by an anonymous Carthusian. So it's like seven centuries old, and undoubtedly orthodox. The Congregation of Doctrine and Faith said this actually is a very orthodox <laughs> work. It, it sounds completely mindful, though, when you read it. And, and he says that you have to bring to the awareness of your own being a desire for God, and you move through that into contemplation. And, you know, it's funny, listening, listening to you describe the brain, uh, I think non-medical and medical people alike could say, wow, you sort of make an argument for the architecture of the brain is designed for prayer. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> it's designed, the height, the height of the operation of the brain is silent love when you're face-to-face with another in the presence of another. Kevin, you recommended a book, Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety, and then a psychiatrist friend of mine recommended one called The Happiness Trap. And what I learned in both of these about mindfulness was that there are two different minds or two different functions of the mind I had never even considered before. And this really opened up vistas to me that really helped to sort this out. And that was the thinking mind and the observing mind. And apparently some languages have different words for those two minds. Would you comment on that? Yeah. And so this is actually what Ian McGilchrist is talking about as the difference between the, the right and left hemispheres. So the old stuff people knew about these two hemispheres is very outdated. They're equally used by you know, both men and women. It's not like one uses one, one uses another. Interestingly, our entire IQ is in the right hemisphere. Right hemisphere? Yes. If you have a stroke in your left hemisphere, you do not lose a single IQ point. Hmm. But you, you lose language, because all oh. of our language is in the left hemisphere. But if you have a stroke in the right hemisphere, you actually lose IQ points. 
Oh this my is goodness. why sometimes we, we know more than we can put into words. Wow. Yeah, so on YouTube, there are many wonderful examples of Ian McGilchrist giving talks. And, I, and he has something called the divided brain. It is all fascinating. Hmm. I'm not on board with his philosophy because he got a kind of typical British schooling, I think, in philosophy, you know, for someone raised in the 60s. Uh, so his philosophy isn't that great, but his neurology is awesome. <laughs> and Good warning. He actually he sees atheism as a neurological disorder. What? As, <laughs> wow. As... Because the left hemisphere is materialistic. The right hemisphere is open to mystery and silence. Hmm. And, and it's actually open to God inherently. And he makes this argument. And he, and he said, I was raised an atheist, but now I'm becoming a theist. Once I realized that my entire upbringing was dominated by the left hemisphere. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all a mathematic, it's all you know, about defining things and about manipulating and seeing the world as molecules and mechanisms and machines. That line is now my primo line of 2020, Kevin. Atheism is a neurologic disorder stated by yes. a former atheist. That is incredible. Well, that'll be yes, your line, it's actually, now, technically, technically, it's a form of hemi-neglect. Hemi-neglect. <laughs> I love so it. So the left, the, the left hemisphere denies the existence of what it doesn't process. But it doesn't process immaterial things. So what does it mean to be in the throes of the left hemisphere? It means you're constantly cogitating on comfort and pleasure, trying to protect yourself from harm. So it is serving usually fear and cravings. So bring this back to anxiety, Kevin. Where does this all fit in with dealing with anxiety? So the way the left hemisphere deals with anxiety is to use words to try to negate it or separate the self from it, and that's called worrying or ruminating. Hmm. So, and the constant worrying is the left hemisphere problem-solving an emotion, and that only makes the emotion worse over you, time. You can't problem-solve right, an emotion. Yes, the right, exactly. The right hemisphere's response is to feel the emotion fully. The mindfulness of emotion is entirely right hemisphere-mediated. So reframing, mindfulness, and engaging challenge are right hemisphere functions. And so to see the anxiety trigger as an opportunity for real growth, that's reframing. That's right hemisphere. And it brings the right hemisphere back online. The second thing is to mindfully open up to feel the signal. Okay, so here's a really important deep point. Mindfulness fulfills the purpose of emotion. Wow. How does it do that? Because emotions are meant to give us data yes. really fast that our automated centers detected, and it simply wants us to know about it. So if there is a threat that got perceived automatically by our threat detector, it just wants us to know that a threat's been detected. And so the purpose of the emotion that we feel is simply to tell us information. And mindfulness fulfills the teleology or purpose of emotion by receiving the signal, saying, ah, now I feel it. But if people aren't willing to use their right brain and fully feel the signal, which should, with anxiety, be felt in the front of the chest as the tension there, and that's the key place. If it's not felt there, it goes other places, the lower back or the neck or, other, mm. or the stomach and GI tract. You want to feel anxiety in the front of the chest as a tension and you feel it a little more as you inhale, and then it slightly relaxes as you exhale. And that's why you talked about before, if somebody's feeling intense anxiety, a way they can handle it is with that that big breath in, feel the pressure in your chest, exhale yes. out. And you said after about 90 yes. seconds, the intense feeling passes. It does, because your amygdala doesn't want you to suffer. It only wants you to know. <laughs> and what, when you what feel a kind it, amygdala. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's doing what you trained it to do. <laughs> so, so you need, so, and so mindfulness, when it comes to emotion, is such a simple thing. So it's much, this is much more simple than mindfulness of being, which brings silence to the mind. Which the benefit of that is it totally turns off the left hemisphere's like, uh, pull, which is about problem solving and you know, verbalizing. So Kevin, my left hemisphere has taken over, and we're going to have to take a break. But we'll be right back. 
from All the right. studios of Redeemer Radio. We're back on Dr. Doctor with the second half of our interview with Kevin Majors on mindfulness and how it can impact anxiety. So, Kevin, I've got two related questions on mindfulness, and that is one, there are exercises that these various books help us to do, often with recordings to to help us along, that we do when we're not feeling particularly anxious. Then there are mindfulness things to do in the moment of feeling anxiety. So the first part of the question is, what is the value of doing these exercises at a point in the day when we're not necessarily feeling anxious? Yeah, I think so. You want to get used to doing certain practices before you make it more difficult. So, for instance, in my therapy practice, if I am going to do an exposure to some trigger with with a patient, so, you know, they might come in with an obsession that's bothering them. Well, before I do any exposure work uh, to have them confront the thing they're afraid of, I would first teach them how to receive the signal in the best way. So I'm going to teach them to feel the breath, to make sure they're not, you know, that they're doing four seconds in, gently pause for two, four seconds out, gently pause for two, and then breathing through the nose, not the mouth, not big breaths, but nice minimal breaths, and feeling especially the feeling in the front of their chest. And then we start practicing. So it could be a, you know, a worry someone has, like, I'm going to be fired tomorrow or something, and they would, might write it down and then read it again and again. And then they're going to feel their amygdala, the threat detector, is going to really fire off, and they're going to feel it. But they just keep feeling it as fully as they can. And within a couple minutes, it's drained away the anxiety. So this is very simple. But first, you want to teach them some of the motions. And then, in the more challenging situation, they put it into practice. So what I find best is that before people sit down for their first hour of work, they practice reframing it. The look in this next hour, like how do I make this really my best hour of work ever? How do I craft this into what I call a golden hour? And so I'm the, and you're starting to think of how can I do this with as much love and spirit of service as possible, as much care for details, and they get really enthused about doing it really well. That's reframing, and then mindfully, you want them to settle their mind so that they have very few intrusions of thought. And the better people get at feeling the breath or the life of their body or their act of being, the faster their mind just settles into silence. Now, once it's been, it can stay in silence for a time, then I want them to specify the challenge so they're going to stretch themselves to engage. Now, that is exactly what you do whenever you're anxious, but it also works perfectly in an hour of work. So to really do an hour of work well, you actually learn all these motions you need to then handle anxiety well. So, Kevin, something um, that you said here about the the mindfulness that has helped me greatly um, is that the goal of mindfulness is not necessarily, according to the books, feeling at peace. It's on focusing on the breath or where you are and knowing that these thoughts are going to come, but then just gently going back to being aware of the breath, uh, the position you're, you're in, et cetera. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is, if you want to be feeling better, try feeling better. And if I could write that, the second <laughs> feeling would be underlined. To feel better, you have to get better oh, at the act of feeling. Yes. Mm. Very good. Very and so, good. So, so mindfulness is not not to get rid of feelings. Right. That's a false problem-solving strategy in the left hemisphere. And that was and, that was a yes. life-altering idea from you and from yes. these books for me. Yes. So, is that is that related like, to Kevin to this this false pursuit of happiness or pleasure? It's it's all about problem-solving comfort and yeah. preventing pain. Mm. And that's what the left hemisphere serves. Interesting the left hemisphere is the Ian McGilchrist book, by the way, is called The Master and His Emissary. And he says the right brain should be the master because the right brain has ideals and morals. And then the left brain should be serving that and finding how to best bring your ideals of love and service into action. But if it doesn't serve those higher things, it ends up serving the passions. Mm. And it's all about comfort. And you get into preventing future pain. 
as the biggest priority of the left brain. <clears throat> and that's what leads to worrying and avoidance behaviors. And so when a person then feels anxious, their left brain wants to swoop in and try to like be worrying and thinking about it and racing, and then they want to avoid it, but they can't, so they feel trapped. And when that's what we call thwarted escape, where the person is desperate to escape but can't. And while you're in that state, the anxiety cannot habituate. It can't go down at all. So that's why you have to flip it around. And instead of being stuck trying to get rid of it, welcome it as fully as yes, you can. Yes, welcome the because anxiety. The, the, yes. The truth is, your, your best chance to become a person with no problems of anxiety is at the very moment it's at its height. Yes. Because when your amygdala is sounding the alarm the most, and that's when you feel anxious, it is in the most ready state to learn mm. that this is not a threat. And the only way it's going to learn it's not a threat is that you're viewing this as a good opportunity for practice, you're feeling the alarm, and you're engaging the challenge directly. As you've said before, so are, bring yeah. it on or lean into it. Yes. Into it. Everything so, that comes down to how you handle anxiety is, this is great, bring it on. So reframing <laughs> says intellectually, this is exactly the training my amygdala needs. <laughs> yeah, bring it on. Mindfulness says, this is the feeling I am open to feeling right now. Bring it on. So that's so, the observing mind noting yes. that it's there. Exactly. Not wrestling with it. So, Kevin, is the, and, is the person not mm -hmm. experiencing anxiety or anxiety problems, uh, is that person just uh, inherently doing a better job at managing this? Is their right hemisphere doing a better job at, at overpowering their left? <laughs> they might be better at avoiding challenge. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't really know. The, 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 the real key, though, like I think for like a family, the key I, I feeling a family should have is that it's adventurous. Hmm. And, it, like, it, and people from that family are ready to launch into life as an adventure because they're, they know that they can grow when they're challenged. And they see challenges as unlocking opportunities for them. And they see their brain as a muscle that grows with vigorous activity. And so they can, you know, and they're not, so th this idea is a very important idea for, like, is that many people with anxiety think this is permanent. Because that's the way every emotion is. When you have a lot of it, it yes. feels permanent. Yes, it mm. does. But, but in fact, these are all muscles that grow. You just have to get the right approach to unlock how to grow. Do you think that mindfulness exercises are a good thing to do to prepare for prayer. And I ask this because at the, at the Vatican, at a medical conference, we had a very non-medical speaker in the session on mindfulness a year and a half ago. And she was someone you'd never think would come up on this episode, and her name is Katy Perry. Mm -hmm. At the time, the number one Twitter account follow, follower uh -huh. being followed in the world. But she said something that got made fun of in a supposed Orthodox Catholic um, periodical. And she said that she practices mindfulness exercises and then she prays. And to me, mm -hmm. that sounded very wise. Mm -hmm. Is it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if a person feels that their mind is bombarding them with to-do lists, why not calm that mind down by paying attention to the breath? And if you want, you can join meditation with mindfulness by saying what's called an aspiration. As you inhale, you say, like, for instance, the Jesus prayer. You know, yes. As you inhale, you say, Lord Jesus Christ. And as you exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right, that's or called hesychasm in the, especially the Eastern uh, Church, Orthodox and Catholic. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, fascinating. Another, another ancient way of doing that is, oh, God, come to my aid. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. So, Kevin, would the example that you gave be a form of mindfulness that also is prayer? Yeah, so you can mm. join them. Sometimes, even like, for instance, in praying the rosary, if you're praying it, you know, you can do it where half of a Hail Mary is the inhale and half is the exhale. And just the slightest <laughs> awareness of the breath can completely shut off distraction. Ah, so, like and And so now having Our Lady's presence very like, clear in your mind is even better. And feeling a fire of love you know, is even better. But it's a start. And so I don't, I think of mindfulness as just an entrance into prayer. And real contemplation is intensely mindful because it's intensely silent. 
So mindfulness can merely be a, an exercise or a resting of the mind that can it, lead to prayer or actually be prayer, either one. Exactly. It's a Good. posture of the mind that prepares you to pray. And, it, and so to read Cardinal Seurat's book on silence, yes. The Power of Silence. Yes. That's it. So I think many times when Catholics talk about, like, they're worried about mindfulness, how would they not be worried about silence, per se? Because that's mostly what people are doing. I think they have fears that something untoward is going to enter their mind. You know, it's like the parable of the uh, what the man who's possessed and the house is swept clean, preparing it to be entered by, you know, even worse demons. I think that's their yeah. fear. That, would, I know, that seems like living in fear. Like, if you're going to be silent, then it, silence doesn't bring us close to the devil. Silence brings us closer to God. Mm. Oh, yeah, the I devil mean, so doesn't our, like silence. Our, the, yeah, the, the thoughts and images in our head are non-being and noise. By finding being and silence, see, on the other side of our real existing, our act of being, is our Lord holding it up with his word of power. We actually feel ourselves held in being by the love of God. Yes. And we feel everything around us. There's actually a wonderful, there's a Harvard professor who had, uh, you know, uh, he was a professor at Harvard Business School, and you know he was walking on the beach, and suddenly the entire world around him became like a veil, and eternity got lit up behind it. Oh my gosh! And and he converted Catholicism as a result of, this, of these visions, and his name is Roy Showman. And oh you can yes. Do a YouTube search. Yes. For, you know, Harvard professor has vision of the Virgin Mary. Yes. But what he felt he was a metaphysical insight that his entire existing, his act of being, was a fountainhead being supplied by the love of God. So all worrying, especially worrying about being loved, was such a foolish thing, because he was being held up by the love of God. Mm. That's the fundamental insight that we should keep with us all day long, and every person we see and everything we're doing, this vivid awareness of being held in being. So when we're very mindful, we think we're very still, and it's like being in the middle of, on like a, a boat in the middle of a lake, and everything seems very still and solid, but really, the truth is, we're at the top of a fountain, being held so perfectly in being that we don't notice it. And if that fountain, which is God, were to stop, then we'd drop into nothingness. Mm. So, Kevin, our, say our, there's a listener right now who is just caught in the throes of worry. What would you mm-hmm. recommend they do based on what you've just been talking about? It's like they can't think so, clearly, they can't remember the rest of the episode. What should they do? Yeah, so I think that the, the best thing that they can do is to try to get out of their head and into their heart and then open up to the anxiety as a vitality of living. And there's a feeling of vitality in their being, which is being given to them right now by God. Fully feel the anxiety that they have. Stop trying to fight it in any way. Instead, ride it like a wave. <laughs> Just stay on top of it, and it will gently the wave will settle them down. So they have so, to wait until the wave calms, and that will the happen. The body takes time. The body takes time. And especially if, you're, if you've been stuck in thwarted escape, desperately trying to get away from this feeling. I'm not, but, but the better you get at making that anxiety into what it really is, a physical signal centered in the chest, simply communicating something to you. Why it's the chest, Kevin? What, what is the importance of the chest? Because that's where the vagus nerve puts most of the innervation. Ah, mm. okay. And the vagus nerve is one is a tenth cranial nerve. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it puts it there, you know, evenly uh, and takes it in. Also, it takes it back up. So it does both things of depositing the tension and feeling the signal again. Okay. So you're using it when you fully feel all those sensations too, and it controls your parasympathetic nervous system. So accept the anxiety, ride it like a wave till it's down, don't try to escape yes. it, then what? Yes, smile at it. <laughs> Welcome. It. Very good. And yes, then to your, to your earlier point, it, allow, yes. allow yourself to learn from it. So Yes. And if the, what is exactly the challenge that you need to be engaging? So in that challenge, you can learn to engage. The feeling, you can learn to feel. This threat you can learn to see as an opportunity because you are capable of learning. As long as your amygdala is capable of firing anxiety signals, you are capable of retraining it. (laughs) Kevin, in the Bible, 
Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, you sh- mm-hmm. what you shall eat or drink or what you shall put on your body to wear. Yet anxiety is an emotion that we can't avoid. So how do you square those two facts? What Jesus said, don't be anxious about anything, and the fact that anxiety is an emotion that we can't avoid. Well, I think there are, you, you, he was talking about being anxious about things that are better left to the prayer he gave us, like the Our Father. Yes, <laughs> and so, good point. So that these things you know, should be turning us to prayer, and every need we have. So ultimately, we need. what does it mean to see our lives being <clears throat> completely in the providence of God? So, you know, so God is present to us in different ways. And so one of them is upholding us in being, and we discover him in the very center of our soul. You know, another is as the person we talk to when we pray, as a face, presence facing us. But another is through his actual providence, arranging all the events in our life, he is seen. And so for us to just have trust in his providence is actually to see him. And it's to see his hand at work. And that's the ultimate basis of reframing. Every, uh, every challenge we meet is the challenge we need. Ah. Everything we meet, because he has a desire for us to be on fire with love for him in perfect holiness. And everything that happens to us is his plan for that to happen. And the best thing we can do is to have correspond with the desire for holiness. So if you seek first holiness in the kingdom of God, then everything else is added unto you. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jesus said something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kevin, so, so it's all about purifying our desires. In our so last minute here, what would you like to share with listeners as the key ideas of this episode? I think there's this idea you know, that uh, when we are aware of being held you know, by God in being, that's actually what I believe is the fruit of um, the virtue of hope. You know, to, to what it means to trust in God and to hope in Him, and that's you know in in us, uh, hope is what pierces the veil of you know the, this world around us and drops anchor in the eternity of God. And so, hoping in God and, and being aware of His presence is a completely different thing than thinking about him or just meditating about him. And so mindfulness opens us to this dimension and even points us in the direction which is the ultimate cure of anxiety, that there's a God behind all of this holding it up. Who we get to live with forever. Ideally, yes. And and another, you know, in the wrap-up, another Catholic idea that really fits this is the sacrament of the present moment in uh, the French Jesuit Jean-Pierre de Cossade. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that is. And that's the idea that this is all communicating to us hidden grace. And technically, it's, this is all the work of um, the, the gifts of knowledge. To see created things as being upheld in being by God. And so that we feel ourselves to be an effect and God is the cause. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us for a, a third episode. And we have so much more to talk about, uh, about acceptance and commitment therapy and some of the, the core processes of that. And we look forward to having you back soon on another episode. God bless yeah, you, I look Kevin. forward to being back. Thank you all. Take care. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and it's time for the answer to our medical trivia question, which tonight is of biblical nature. Yes, and it's a two-part question, one dealing with Jesus, one dealing with his mother. Who is the person that Jesus said to their face, you are anxious? And what is the situation in which the Bible said that Mary was anxious? (laughs) Did you you know these, Chris? I knew the first one. And that, that answer is? Martha. Right. Jesus said when he was in the home of Mary and Martha, and Mary's sitting at his lap, just uh, right at his feet, just listening and soaking up everything he had to say. And Martha was anxious and worried about many things, waiting on them, complaining that her sister wasn't helping her. In some translations, Jesus said, Martha, chill. <laughs> what do we call that translation? <laughs> 
The other is when Mary was looking for Jesus before finding him in the temple. So it says that Mary was uh, anxious about Jesus, or she actually says to Jesus, your father and I were anxiously looking for you. As we all parents would know that feeling. I have lost God. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What did she think at that point? I I can't imagine. I mean, I, I just know it's been so funny. Even in my own family, there have been times when we had young children, when my life, wife was anxiously looking for a child and was in a store with the other kids and said, where's this child? This child is missing. And they go, mom, you're holding her. <laughs> and that's when I think my wife just said, I think it's time to go back home, kids. I bet many mothers have experienced we've moments all, like that. We've all been there. I like, uh, I like the... The adolescent Jesus who, when his mother and dad find him, he gives them sort of the um, the 2,000-year-ago version of, you know, duh. <laughs> I was right here the whole time. Where else did you expect yeah. me to be? Exactly. <laughs> With us, of course. But, you know, parents are not their children. Uh, <laughs> so thank you listeners for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts or at uh, RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the medical aspects of the Shroud of Turin with Dr. Scott Finch. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.